Hello everyone, this is Keith Cup, founder of Gravitas Impact Premium Coaches, a worldwide community of experienced, skilled, and purpose-driven advisors who help CEOs get results and live their purpose through their business leadership. Today, everyone, we have Greg Crabtree, partner at Car Rigs and Ingram in Alabama here in the United States. Greg is an author, speaker, husband, father, grandfather, and a very accomplished finance expert. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Appreciate it, Keith. Thanks for having me and happy to share, share the, this time with your audience. Well, thank you for that. And let's, uh, let's start right off the bat. You are releasing your next book, Simple Numbers 2.0. What is the big idea in that book, Greg? Well, this, this has been the labor of love. So the, the, the first book was released in 2011. And, and it really was just kind of this first basic idea of the things that, you know, we felt like entrepreneurs needed to know to just get a clean understanding of how to run a business from truthful data that truly helped them build wealth and, uh, you know, run a profitable business that would make an impact to their lives and their community. And over the last 10 years, as we've consulted with those people who came to us because of the book and because of the speaking, you know, we, we continued to expand on those ideas. And I, I, I had the opportunity, uh, I'm involved in the entrepreneurs organization. So it was really a big catalyst for me of, of really kind of breaking away from a, an accountant mindset to an entrepreneur's mindset. And I, I get to chair the executive ed program that EO puts on at EO at Horton uh, Business School. And in the first year of that program, uh, about five, six years ago, um, the Professor Wessels, who was the lead professor, he was discussing this concept of return on invested capital with a group. And I'm sitting in the back of the group and I'm going, hmm, that's interesting. I, I know that calculation from school, but I've never done it on a client. And I, I started looking at, after I got home and, and noodled on it some more, I started looking at it with our client data. And, and this was a missing piece of what I had discussed in the first book. Because in the first book, I talked about a you're on life support at 5% profit, you're a good business at 10, you're a great business at 15. Anything above 15, take it while you can get it because the market will compete you back to that number. Mm -hmm. And that actually is still pretty valid for about 70% of the businesses. But I couldn't tell you why, I just said it as an observation. But what bugged me was I couldn't answer the question for the other 30. And then I kept looking for that answer. And once I understood the return on invested capital, that's the answer. And one of the nice things is, is because our practice, uh, you know, I, I had my own firm at that time. We, we merged with Carr Riggs and Ingram back in January. So we're now part of a, a top 25 U.S. accounting firm uh, that they were attracted to us because of our consulting you know, program that we do. And but in our just in our consulting practice, our clients are all over the U.S., Canada, you know, some internationally. But um, but we really study our U.S. client data because it's all different industries coast to coast. And and so having access to that data to study, I was able to do an analysis and I came up with this idea that, you know, we, we developed this concept that we said, if you're not at a 50 percent return on invested capital minimum, that, that that's what we established as the minimum acceptable return of a viable business. That if you're below that number, you are at risk. You are at risk from a market disruptions like COVID. You're at risk of, of competitive uh, disruption. Uh, you're, you're, you require high amounts of capital with low potential return, which is not good for an operating business. 
And so once we establish that framework, it, it has been just amazing because the reality is 50% is the minimum. We see many business examples of that return on investment of 75 to 100%. Uh, some industries enjoy as much as a 200% return because they're a low capital requirement business. And so for your coaches uh, that, that work with businesses, this is really something I, would, I tell all the coaches that we work with is say, listen, you know, when you get an executional model that, you know, you, you have no hampering of growth from a money standpoint, it's all about execution, man, that is, that's, that's fertile ground, you know, to, to go scale a business. And, and so, you know, so I put it to the audience like this. You know, many people will tell you once you start growing a successful business that you ought to take this money out of the business and you need to go diversify it. Well, maybe to a point, but let me ask you this. If your business is returning 75 to 100 percent, why would you do that until the business has reached its maximum potential? Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, tell me tell me what else in the marketplace is going to earn you 75 to 100 percent return year after year after year. Now, granted, I will tell you that most of our clients struggle to redeploy that cash that it's spinning off effectively to continue to producing that return. So I'm, I don't don't reinvest it and it not work. But, you know, I just did a session yesterday with a client that I love their model. And these guys are going to be able to they, they, they've got one of the best scalable models, you know, that I've seen in a long time. And, and it, it, it was just, it was just a joy to work through the numbers with them to see their plan and see them get clarity of how that plan was going to play out and what their, what their guidelines were, where, where are the ditches in the road, you know, where's the bumpers, you know, that they got to stay away from, but if they go execute now, I mean, they, they, this thing is wired for success. And, and, and that is just an incredible advantage for a CEO and a leadership team to understand, you know, here's our operating parameters that we got to stay within. Now, now let's, let's just really hone in our focus on what really matters rather than trying to deal with everything. And, and a lot of that stuff doesn't matter in that process. But, you know, but where, where else are you going to get 75 to 100 percent return? And it's like nowhere that's legal. And so let's let, let's focus on the business folks first, guys. And, uh, you know, because there, there will soon be a day if, if the business is returning that I will guarantee you that there's a point that you can't 100 percent reinvest your profits back in the business for effective return. And at that point, yes, then you diversify, you build investments outside of the business. But way too many of the the financial world start to get entrepreneurs to. Um, to take money out of the business uh, way too soon when, when the business really has a, a greater run in it. Well, let, let me ask a, a question here uh, in a moment, Greg, but I, what I hear you saying, the big idea is, hey, entrepreneurs, owners, if you do the calculation and work, if you have a return on invested capital of 50%, double down on that. That yeah. is your best return, correct? Absolutely. Now, and, and, and there's, there's two things I'm fighting here. One is taking money out of the business to diversify in another investment. I will tell you the bigger challenge that I have with entrepreneurs is getting them to not consume it. Now, granted, now in, in, our, in our definition of return on invested capital, it really comes down to simply this. This is your, your, your net operating income of the business. So your pre-tax net income that is you being paid a market-based wage. So this is still true from the first book. 
If you're not paying yourself as an owner a market-based wage for the job you're doing in the business, you're lying to yourself about the profitability of the business. And so this requires the business to, to look at a true net profit number based on truly what your comp ought to be and probably even to the high side of the market because, you know, I'm not trying to starve you, you know, but, but I, what I don't want you to do is take distributions for consumption out of the business when, you know, let, let's face it, if, if you've got let, let's let's just do this, for example, you got $100,000 and I'm going to give you a, a 100% CD. So a year from now, I'm going to give you back your 100 plus 100. Oh, by the way, that 100 that you just made is taxable. So we're going to take 40,000 out of it. So now you've got $160,000. Would you like to do it again? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, well, the, the, the correct answer is absolutely yes. Now, let me ask you this. If you've got a 100% CD that you just made $100,000 return on in a year, 60,000 after tax, are you going to take that 60,000 out and go buy a new BMW? That, that you could get by without. Yeah. And, and and it's like, I'm telling you, this is this is why you want to delay some gratification. I, I'm not trying to, and like I said, I, I'm making sure that you get a full salary for the job that you're doing. It is the the consumption of distributions in the 10 million and under more more uh, more predominantly, but it, it can happen even to bigger businesses. But there's there's people that get used to living. They they increase their consumption off of the distribution requirements of the business. And as I always like to say, when you require distribution profit distributions out of the company to cover your lifestyle, you're on the slippery road to entrepreneurial hell. Because the business will not constantly produce profit. I can give you a high probability that it can cover your salary. Most of our clients have not missed salary during COVID, but they didn't all keep a profit during those lockdown months. Mm -hmm. And so once again, those people who had set their lifestyles based on distributable profits had put themselves in a very dangerous position in that process. So all of these, all of these things tie together and say, these are the things that the best of the best do, and, and they don't scream from the headlines because it may not be sexy, but I'm telling you, it's pretty effective. And, and so, Greg, I want to ask in a moment, how, where does a CEO, an entrepreneur focus, what are the levers for return mm -hmm. on invested capital? But first, yeah. could you give us a layman's definition, okay, for those, yes. those CEOs listening in that are not financial mm -hmm. executives or background? Define it, and then how do we impact it? Yeah, so the numerator, for those of us that are mathematically challenged, the numerator is the top number of a fraction, and the denominator is the bottom number of a fraction. So make sure everybody understands that. So the numerator is pre-tax profit. So we're, we're neutralizing this. I don't care if you're a C-Corp, S-Corp, whatever. Just take pre-tax profit on an accrual basis. So that's a numerator. The denominator is your, your invested capital. Now, invested capital for most businesses is business assets minus business liabilities. Now, notice I said business assets minus business liabilities. It's just not necessarily the equity of the business because many entrepreneurs, we, we only have one cow to milk and it's called our business. Mm -hmm. And so we start using assets of the business to do things that aren't related to that business. And so you, so if you want to come to invested capital, you start with equity on your balance sheet, assets minus liabilities, 
and you take out assets that are not business related to the current business operation due to do from other related parties um, intangible assets because those really aren't cashable you know so those aren't those aren't a and, and you may have invested money to buy a business and you had some goodwill, but but that's really, that doesn't count in terms of an invested capital. It's really all your active current assets, your active fixed assets, minus your active uh, uh, current liabilities and your active notes payable that are, are, are related to the business because you could have notes payable um, that, you, that you owe to, to other parties that aren't related to the business operation that you have. So that's how Professor Wessels is very clear in the Wharton class where he says return on equity is a flawed calculation because you have to purify equity to a true business asset liability net number mm-hmm. in that process. Now, for most cleanly run businesses, I will say that I just did this calculation for a client an hour ago. And they were at 30%. And they asked the question, how do we get to the target of 50? And I said, one of two ways. You can reduce the capital required to produce the current profit. So they were doing, you know, let's say they were doing a million dollars of profit, but they were using $4 million of equity. So that's a 25% return. And I said, so if you if you want to solve it by profitability, can you keep capital? you're at the same to produce two million of profit or if i can't push profit any further can i lower capital of the four million down to two million and 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 really we've seen people once people understand that equation they actually attack it from both ends um we we do a lot of work in the the staffing industry now staffing industry is one of the worst return on invested capital business models out there Sorry to say if you guys are in the staffing industry, but, you know, you have to carry receivables and 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 you have no, no you have to use debt typically to finance it because it's, it's really a pretty, uh, uh, pretty expensive thing. And it's a low margin business. Mm-hmm. So we were doing this project for an international staffing client uh, in another country and I'm looking at their books and, and they have they have deferred revenue. So basically his, his AR minus his deferred revenue was a negative number, which meant he was, he was being paid before he had to incur the cost of the staff. Mm-hmm. And I said, how'd you do that? And he goes, well, I ask. <laughs> and I said, you asked. He says, yeah, you know, we're dealing with companies that they were in a particularly targeted industry and they were asking, you know, they, they just asked the company, they knew they had the cash. Right. And, it, and it wasn't a question, it was a question of trust. And, and so they just got money up front, you know, to do these staffing programs. And, and so, I mean, so they, they had an, a, a fraction of the capital invested for the same business model. So it allowed them to really effectively do a low margin business with a high return on invested capital. Mm-hmm. So here's where an idea yields fruit. So I come back and I share that idea and actually connect that client with my U.S. clients. And Lo and behold, Keith, you know what happened? Not only did their profitability go up because he had also had some interesting ideas of how to get better profitability in a particularly low margin industry. Mm-hmm. They improved their profitability, but you know what? They started getting some contracts where they were paid faster and sometimes even in advance. And it was just incredible to see the power of an idea 
put into action to change the trajectory of these companies that heretofore just thought that that was a requirement. But it's like the, the I, and, and, and here's the, here's the powerful thing. Just ask <laughs> what's the worst thing to say, you know, but, and, and this is something we've seen throughout COVID is that we've actually seen more friendly terms from vendor all the way to ultimate customer in the value chain of people understanding being what, what I'm referring to. I wish I'd come up with this term. I, I, I came up with this after the book was done, but w- what I refer to it as is the cooperative economy. So instead of the, you know, the, the classic slide of Dell computer having negative 22 days cash cycle days because they beat the hell out of their vendors and they've learned that that actually isn't good. So they're not as bad of an actor as they used to be, you know, but, but, but there again, you can't, you can't be the kind of business to where you're holding all the cash and patting yourself on your back while you're destroying your suppliers and you're, you're not being friendly to your customers. And, and I think the cooperative economy lets cash move quickly through the system as cash is deployed by every step of the value chain. And, and that allows for margin to be at its most effective and cash flow to be at its highest speed. So, Greg, making this very practical for a CEO listening in, tell me if this is a, a good profile. So if you're an entrepreneur out there running a company and you have significant trust-based relationships with, let's say, larger clients uh, that have plenty of cash in the supply chain here, you could ask for more favorable terms in the cooperative economy. And that would be very practical action to take to increase your return on invested capital. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the thing is, you, you can't just say, I want it. You, you got to go to them with a practical thing of when am I deploying my cash, which since I'm going to ultimately get that cash from them anyway, let's just be a little more friendly on that piece of the transaction. And anything that you can do to speed up cash, you know, is, is really, you know, just an enormous thing. And most people incorrectly, this, this is the part that I think people get confused over. I don't need to speed up cash if it's going to cost me margin. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking, I'm not changing the margin in my equation. I'm just having a more cooperative structure with people who they have the cash just sitting on their balance sheet. They can pay it sooner. And so what can we do to make that happen? And, and we're seeing more and more people understanding that as you get to, like you say, the key is a high trust relationship where you're seen as a partner, not as just a commodity vendor. And so uh, back to the higher level then, for, mm-hmm. the, for the amount of capital, if you keep that fixed, how do we drive better profitability or at the existing profitability, how do we drive down the need for capital? Is that also accurate? Well, yeah. So, so I think there we go into, and I, I, I have a segment uh, in, the, in the new book where I go through this, where we look at segment profitability and segment uh, returns uh, on cash. And, and so the idea is, as you become more sophisticated in a bigger business, you really aren't running a business. You're running multiple business operations under an, a larger business umbrella. And, and so, um, so the idea is whether it's a locational model, I'm looking at my invested capital by location. And I share in the book this example of a four retail location where if you look at the, the, best, the best of the best of each element of the P&L, um, you know, the fourth c- 
comp the, the, the fourth uh, location is not the best of anything that's profitability, but the one thing that it is best at is return on invested capital. And that's the sneaky part that you wouldn't see. And because when you look at, at that one, that's actually the answer to the equation. I want more, I want to build a, a set of building blocks of the highest return on invested capital activities that I can possibly build if I have a choice. Now, once I've run out of all the best choices, I'm going to go to the next best choice and the next best choice and so on from there. But understanding, I, still today, the thing that just drives me batty that, you know, my, my friend Alan Miltz and I both just rail against this is, cat, is this idea of revenue. Revenue is vanity. And, and you know, I, I, I can't appreciate Alan enough or, you know, how much he drives that home in his material. Listen, you know, revenue is vanity, cash is, uh, or revenue is vanity, uh, profit, sanity, and cash is king, as he says. Realistically, that's true because, you know, you, you've really got to understand margin creation at the segment level, but also the speed of margin and how much cash did I have to invest to turn over that margin. And with today's accounting systems, it, it just takes many of the projects that we do with our clients are real helping them really think through and tag the data correctly in their system so that they can produce this information on a reliable rhythm, uh, you know, in, in that process. Because it's not rocket science. I mean, it's, it's not impossible to do. You just have to think about, okay, why does this, why does this data matter? But too many people are, hey, did we hit a revenue target this month? I could care less. Do we hit our margin target this month? And do we, and how is our cash flow working? The smart businesses are the ones that do that. And so this becomes, I believe, the second uh, key actionable item then, uh, Greg, that I'm hearing, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm responding as a CEO myself, um, to look at my client base and to segment them by return on invested capital would yeah. be a wise next step. Yeah, absolutely. Because you can, you know, depending on, like, I'll give you an example. So we got a client that's an Amazon retailer. And so they don't make any products. They just resell other people's stuff on Amazon. And I mean, and they have thousands and thousands of SKUs, but we've helped them develop. They know the return on invested capital of each SKU because they know the margin of that SKU and they know the terms that they have with that vendor that some people give them 60 day terms. Some people make them pay upon purchase. Sometimes they have to carry inventory. Sometimes it's drop ship. And so you can actually do that calculation by skew if you had to. You can do it by customer. You can do it by line of business. In the book, I also show another example of an HVAC contractor that here's their MRR work, their monthly recurring revenue from their service contracts, and what is the profit and the, the, the return on cash of that model versus their projects versus some of the construction projects that they do. And the construction projects have high income, they have low profit and really bad cash flow. And it's like we've told that client to just quit doing those unless it leads to some MRR work. Uh, you know, but other than that, you'd never want to touch it. And, and but there again, if somebody's reaching for revenue, they're going to take all that kind of stuff and it'll kill them. It, it's the thing that destroys your business. It doesn't help them. Greg, as we uh, bring our time uh, around the corner towards close in a few moments, one of the predicates for what you just described then is to have uh, your financials, your chart of accounts and so on, organized so that you can get the right data 
out so you can make these right. decisions. And, and this is what uh, the team at Car Riggs and Ingram uh, help clients with. Is that accurate? And absolutely. You know, because we, we can, our consulting team, you know, can, can help. All right. First, what we do is one of the things that we always say is we're really good with making sense out of bad data. So you don't have to have perfect data for us to do something because we're really good at taking the data that you have and giving you a picture of what it can be with reasonable. And sometimes we might have to estimate where data is missing or something like that, but we'll give you a picture of what's possible. And then our uh, client accounting uh, team, you know, can can help if needed, or, you know, we can, our philosophy is, listen, we're only going to do what you need. You know, if you got people that can do it, we'll just help you kind of build a framework and guide it. If you need us to get in there and help you do it, and we got people that can do that. But a lot of it is, so I, I want to expand people's thinking, because you said an important term while ago, you said chart of accounts. This ain't about the chart of accounts. Yes, it's a key, but this is about three-dimensional accounting. What you have to think of it, and this is a term that I've talked about in some of my, my material, talk about the profit cube. Mm -hmm. I need to be able to see the, the picture of the business in total and by each segment, by location, by line of business, by person, by team, by customer, by SKU, what, what are those things? And so these are what we call tags. And so with programs like QuickBooks and even NetSuite and some of the ERP systems, the, the real strategy is uh, everybody agreeing on the tagging process of what is what are the segments that are important to connect and identifying what are your challenges of connecting data because of how you collect it and working through those process issues. And and so once we, we've done this <laughs> enough times that, you know, we, we kind of know where your where your bottlenecks are kind of going back to the goal and Eli Goldrat of what's the bottleneck that's keeping you from getting this data. Sometimes that data doesn't vary enough that an estimate is OK. Sometimes that data varies a lot and you got to have got to be precise and when, when is which. And that, that's really what our team is, is good at is, is kind of helping people you know, work through that process and use the technology in an operational way so that you're not just lobbing data over the wall to the accounting department and then magically getting reports back. We, we want it really quick and effective that, you know, realistically, you know, you want the people in the field using an operating system in its most effective way that's categorizing data at the moment that you're touching it. And that, that's where the best of the best are. Craig, um, CEOs listening and leaders listening in, what would you give them as one actionable step as a next step to take? I mean, I certainly think the first thing is, is ask yourself the question, do the calculation of what is your return on invested capital? And, and if you're not at that 50% standard, you, you may unlock the reason why that, uh, that, that you know, your, your, your company is constantly struggling in that, you know, you, you've got either too much in capital deployed that could be more efficient, or I'm not really hitting the profit target, you know, that, that my business should. And once you do that calculation, then you start to attack it and say, what can we do better profitability-wise? And I will say that the number one thing that we've seen businesses do during COVID is eliminate poor performing segments, eliminating bad customers that you really shouldn't have been working with in the first place, eliminating locations that, that weren't productive, uh, eliminating um, business segments that sounded like a great idea, but it just was this sucking sound to your business model. And as people 
use COVID as kind of their motivation to, to get focused, uh, we've seen a lot of segments get cleaned up. And, and I think the next thing is after you look at your return on invested capital is then, you know, shine the segment light on your business. And what are those key operating segments and what are you going to do about it? So you can thin the herd for the segments that are weak and then yep. shine the light on the segments that have the opportunity to continue yep. to grow and are strong. So absolutely. Greg, if a listener wants to get a hold of you uh, and find out more, where would you send them on the web? The best place to go to, to check out the book resources and those things is uh, our book website, simplenumbers.me. Uh, and so there's the both books can be purchased there, but we're just as happy if you want to buy them from Amazon. Uh, that's fine um, as well. There's some other free resources on the simplenumbers.me site, some videos that other people have, have uh uh, the shot that we, we put up there, but that's usually kind of the best place to start. Also, they can access the Huntsville office of CRI is the only one that does the simple numbers consulting. Uh, and so they can certainly go to CRICPA.com and see the, the total resources of the firm. And it, it's been great, you know, being part of a bigger organization. Uh, I, I know mergers are always kind of a little, little touchy, but th these guys have just been phenomenal for us. Uh, and, and given us tons of extra portfolio resources, you know, that we can tap into, uh, you know, for our clients when we have special needs of, of certain type of specialty things that, that our office, you know, didn't do and we'd have to use some other, you know, person. So, but uh, the other nice thing is they also have a lot of free information of uh, both web uh, on-demand webinars, you know, that we've done in content uh, mm -hmm. and, and documents and those things as well. So it's a pretty, pretty feature-rich site. Okay. So uh, simplenumbers.me, author, speaker, Greg Crabtree of Carr, Riggs, and Ingram. And listening audience, uh, we're going to uh, finish part one now and then uh, take a little break. And then there will be a part two where we go a little bit more into the human interest story of why Greg does what he does as a finance expert. Greg, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. everyone. This is Keith Cup, founder of Gravitas Impact Premium Coaches. And we're part two today with author, speaker, and expert Greg Crabtree, who is just releasing Simple Numbers 2.0. Greg, welcome to part two of the podcast. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, letting me share. Greg, one thing we love to do in our podcast on part two is to go deeper into the human interest story of who our authors and guests are and we really, uh, we're a purpose-driven organization. So I wanna start with the question. Um, first, recap part one, Simple Numbers 2.0. What's the big idea in that book? To me, the big idea is, is really helping entrepreneurs understand the power of the investment returns of a privately held business. And so, you know, when, when I was first turned on the idea of looking at return on invested capital, as a key performance indicator. It's, it's not a common measure that's looked at in the private industry. So we had to do some research of our own. Fortunately, we have a lot of client data that we can research to. And, and we were able to establish a standard that actually became the missing piece of from the first book of the profit target of, you know, 5% is life support, 10% is good, 15% is great. Well, you know, now I understand why those numbers exist and they work for 70% of the businesses, but I got to use a different standard for the other 30%. But I feel now that with return on invested capital targeting, I can actually set a profit target for any business actually in the world. 
um, you know, given market conditions. And then understanding that the minimum number of that's 50% in the U.S., uh, there's actually, you know, you have some times where that's low that number in uh, international third world countries. Uh, but but in the U.S., our standard is 50%. And so far, that's held true. But in more cases than not, it's 75 to 100 when the business is properly working with efficient capital and efficient profitability. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was exciting to know because it, it's, a, it's been a hidden number that people just hadn't talked about. And it's been very illuminating to our clients to know their target and, uh, and, and know that there's a, there is a why behind the, the pro- you're not making profit just to make profit. You're making profit because that's actually what the business should produce too in that process. And what I love what you've done with your two books, Greg, is the, the qualitative treatment and simple numbers, big profits, and then in 2.0, the use of data over the interim period to investigate this return on invested capital and make recommendations for entrepreneurs. And going back, we've known each other about a decade. And a decade ago, when I first met you, you were uh, really clarifying or maybe putting the passion into your purpose of your work. I remember yeah. a conversation we had. Tell us about your purpose. Why do you do what you do, Greg? Well, you know, I've, I've gone through uh, Jamie Duraghi, an EO member out of L.A. Uh, he came in and did a, uh, a session with us on a, a why assessment. You know, and so it's amazing. You know, Simon Sinek has, has made a great living off of a three letter word. And, um, you know, but there's a there's a lot of power to the idea. And I know that it's not just Simon. There's other people that, that have worked on that concept. But, um, you know, Jamie helped us kind of tease out. And, and for me personally is. <laughs> And I think this probably came from growing up on the farm. Um, there's got to be a better way. <laughs> and so, you know, when, when you grow up as a kid on a chicken farm, um, you know, there's got to be a better way to make a living. <laughs> and, you know, when you're gathering seven or 8,000 eggs a day by hand, you know, from the time I was six years old till I went to college, it's like, yeah, this isn't what I want to do for a living. And, and then I go off to college and I, I just, I, I decided I wanted to be an accountant because, you know, they worked in an air conditioned office. Uh, that was kind of the basis of my understanding. So I come out of school and I get in this job of accounting and it's like, oh gosh, if there ever was a, an application of there's got to be a better way. I mean, I mean, everything I did the first year out of school, you know, is no longer done by human. And it's like, I somehow, and most people have told me I'm not a typical accountant profile, uh, whatever that is, you know, but, uh, and, and I guess that's a compliment in a, in a sense that I looked at this and I endured learning the skill set to find a better way. And it's the application of technology plus the application of better thinking. Mm-hmm. And, and, and because what I'm really driven to is this thing, I, I, just, I just hate to see human effort go to useless things. I guess is kind of a core. And, and, and when I see businesses that could do so much better and fail to do it, um, when, when I see people, you know, that, that could have a better outcome and if, if they just didn't make the avoidable mistakes, how much better can that be for everybody in, in that process? And, you know, and I think a lot of it is, is driven, you know, by, you know, people that, that, you know, might, the guy that got me into EO, Ron Hollis, who was the CEO of a company called QuickParts.com that he founded, uh, and Ron was, you know, was the one that that invited me to my first EO event in Atlanta in 2001, and I joined on the spot. 
and and Ron, you know, kind of lived under this mantra of, um, you know, if you think you know something unique, you owe it to the world, one, to write a book on it, and then two, help the world be better because of it, um, you know, in, in that case. And that's just a string that you just keep pulling and you never, it never comes out completely. You just keep pulling it. And it somewhat ties into, I mean, you know, I, as a, uh, you know, as a, as a Christian and a believer, you know, um, it is how you, you help your fellow man uh, in that process. I, I, I firmly believe in the win-win proposition. I am ad- absolutely against a win-lose. And, and there's so much opportunity for win-win that's not being taken advantage of in the world. Um, and one of the things I, I get to do is deliver my content internationally. And when I go to third world countries, what's been fascinating is to see their eyes light up as I share with them entrepreneurial principles that can help their economy. And, and, and there's other barriers that I think I can even do there in some of those countries to, to help people, um, you know, you know, turn that country into not something that's looking to the government for answers, not looking to international companies, you know, for investment. As I tell them, you know, I was doing a talk in, uh, in Kenya, they were talking about the economy being a little bit slow. And, and they said, well, government spending's down and the international spending's down. And I said, well, hey, just as, as somebody's come in from the outside, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on out there. <laughs> so I, I think you're I think you're looking at the wrong thing in terms of figure out a way to meet that need of the market. And and I start the next book that is uh, Simple Numbers 2.0. Uh, and the subtitle, I think, is kind of unique. I, I call it Rules for Smart Scaling, because not all scaling is good. I mean, you know, so there, there is a there's a smart way to scale. And we think we've uncovered some of the, the key principles of, of, of guiding people through that scaling process and 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 so it, you know as a as i shared with them i said you know you know you've got to first figure out what the market needs then figure out how to do it profitably and then make sure that it makes a 50 percent return that's my three simple rules for business success and so i'm i'm passionate about this idea of helping people to to achieve you know what what our maker has put in front of us <laughs> it's like yeah, it, it's like it's here. It's right there, guys. Come on, you know. Let let let's 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 avoid the avoidable mistakes because there's enough challenges of the things that we can't you know change. Um, and and so, but let let's at least you know don't miss the layups. Question on that, Greg. What what is the pattern of resistance that you've seen through time to deliver that message? So what I hear you saying is, hey. I want entrepreneurs to find a better way to build a great business. And it's really not rocket science. It's simple mm-hmm. numbers. And then it's a, a, a better way to scale. Yeah. What resistance do you encounter as you take your message globally? Um, I mean, certainly globally, there's some cultural differences, um, you know, from that standpoint, um, you know, you've got, um, internationally, there's still quite a bit of family business structures. And so we've done work both in Latin America, India, Southeast Asia, and in working with those countries in the companies there of the family structure, there is this overt control mechanism that, that they violate all of the, the primary principles of finance because of, of what they choose to do for the family 
and and you create distortion. And so, you know, you know from my first book, I mean, the first first underlying principle of simple numbers, big uh, straight talk, big profits was remove distortions. Well, inherently, family business models have a tendency to create distortions because they're paying family members that aren't really delivering value for what they're being paid. And so to me, that that's just a principled no-no. And, and so, you know, you live by these principles. And, and so as you establish the principles, you, you run into conflict. And, and sometimes those cultural conflicts, you know, present some challenges. Uh, we worked with one client in India to where, you know, um, she was trying to, she, she ran a segment of the business. But, you know, I, I talked to the controller of their business and he wouldn't even give her complete financial information. I mean, it's like, I mean, I mean, no balance sheet and only a limited PL that and it's like well, we can't do analysis of this if they won't give you data. And yet, you know, she was one of, she was the daughter of, of the owner of the business. And it's like, you know, it's like, come on, folks, you know, but but there again, those are the challenges and the barriers they face. Uh, and and we don't quite so I mean the family business is kind of a dying breed in the US. There's very, very, very few family businesses left anymore. Yeah, we see a lot of a lot of fear-based mechanisms in family businesses through generations. Yeah. So, yeah. Greg, as we wrap our time up here, then thank you for sharing your purpose. Uh, tell us a little bit about your family, real quick, uh, before we bring it to a close. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we, we've got uh, four kids. So, we had a, a daughter was our oldest, and three sons. And uh, fortunately, three of those still live around us. One lives in Atlanta, but all as I always say that they, they all are off the payroll. Uh, as we say, so that's, that's a good thing. Um, and then, um, we've got, uh, uh, three granddaughters. Uh, so two of them live here, you know, close to us in town that we get to see one lives in Atlanta. And so, uh, I will tell everybody that the grandparent phase is far better than the, uh, raising children phase. So if you could start with grandkids, it might be the, <laughs> might be the best approach. Uh, but uh, but it, 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 it's been nice. I mean, it's uh, it's been great to, to see them all, um, you know, pursue, you know, their passions and uh, and, uh, and all of those. And, and so it's uh, it, it's been nice. And we were able to kind of accomplish uh, we about five years ago, we built a house on 20 acres out in the country because I'm a I'm a country kid that. I like living in the country and going to town when I have to. And, and uh, so we've got a nice bluff view that's kind of our mountain getaway that we get to live in every day and finished a, a pool project to be the magnet for the grandkids, you know, for the next 20 years. And, uh, you know, and, and it's, as I, as we built the house, uh, I, I referred to it as this is my last house. And so they will take me to the grave or the senior home from this one. So there we go. Maybe they'll bury you out behind the pool there. Uh, that, 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 yeah, they could probably just throw me out the bluff. You know, um, <laughs> well, and, one, and one thing I, I, I'll ask yeah. you one more question in a moment. But one, one thing that I really appreciate is when you sent me the picture of that view from your back area. Yeah. I mean, that was your vision years before you and your wife actually yeah. built and so vision is important in life. So Greg, let's finish by having you speak directly to the CEO, the entrepreneur about life and business. And what piece, one piece of wisdom would you give them? Many listening in, uh, many may be in their mid twenties all the way up to their early sixties. But when you think about life and business, what nugget would you like to share before we sign off? Well, I think I think it comes down to authenticity 
and consistency because you know the values that you have at home can't be different than the values that you have at work and um and being in an advisory business like i'm in you know i, I gotta live by my own cooking a lot of times and and one of the things that i i initially get some resistance from from entrepreneurs, especially in the early stages, is I push them that once once we've reinvested all of there is to reinvest in the business for growth at these high rates of return. But you're going to get to a point that the market's saying the next thing is not so sure, and you're you're appropriate to start harvesting some of that profit off the business. The first thing that, as you well know, that I recommend to people is you know to have a paid for personal residence. This is not a popular belief amongst the financial world, but I'm batting a thousand on it. Everybody that I've convinced to do it has come back to me later and said, this is the best move I've ever made because mm-hmm. it's a, it creates security for your family, which is so incredibly important as business, your business may face adversity, but you've got to be able to, to as early in your building your business career is create that security for your family. And it's not about, having you know 20 million dollars in the bank it's about and 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 i can share this from 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 my own personal goal because in in this past year i've been able to achieve that very thing myself and i can tell you that if bad things happen i can live off of very little cash a month (laughs) because i don't i don't have a payment to anybody or anything i don't have a payment on the house and you know, and, and I'll tell you, it, it's just a freeing thing. It's not about return on investment for that case, because this is an emotional security thing. And, and having that in place and, and, and now the security that my wife feels, you know, if something happens to me, you know, where, where, where is she in, in her stead, you know, in, in that case. And those are just incredible things that, um, you know, but like I said, it, I, I had to push to do it because I'd been pushing my clients to do it. I have to be consistent because I have to do what I say, you know, in, in that process or else I'm, I'm not authentic. Interesting. Maslow's hierarchy. Uh, the first level is security of shelter. So Greg Crabtree, author of two books uh, and speaker and friend of Gravitas. Greg, thanks again for uh, joining us, this, joining us on part two. Appreciate you very much. I uh, appreciate it. Thank you, Keith. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. If you'd like to hear more from our premium coaches, faculty thought leaders, and guest speakers, subscribe to our channel on iTunes or Spotify. Your feedback is very important to us. So please leave us a review. See you next time. And remember, making a difference together, that's Gravitas Impact.